Hello! Welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, NobleKnight.com, where Out of Print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. Today, we're talking about rules updates and the sorcerer in D&D Next. With me today at the round table are Andrew Kane. Hey, hey. Rudy Basso. Hey, how's it going? And Joe Lestowski. Hi there. Uh, guys, why don't you give us a little bit of your gaming background? Andrew Kane, let's start with you. Sure, I started playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons in high school with 3rd edition, right before it made the transition to 3.5, uh, which I also played in. And then I also just completed a campaign, level 1 through 30 in 4th ed, and now I'm playing around with uh, D&D Next. Awesome. Rudy, how about you? Started with 4th edition, played that for quite some time, moved on to 5th. Also played a little Ghostbusters RPG, uh, a lot of fun. You know, recent news, Helldramus left us. Very disappointing. I want to get back into it because it's such a great game. And also, DMing a Star Wars, or GMing a Star Wars Saga Edition game right now. Also, lots and lots of fun. Joe, how about your background? Well, I feel kind of like the old man. I also started in high school, but that was back in the early 90s, uh, around the first edition, second edition uh, changeover. I have played every edition since then. I'm a big fan of fourth edition. I run D&D Encounters at my local gaming store, and I'm also running a weekly uh, Fantasy Flight Star Wars Edge of Empire game. Wow, that sounds incredible. Uh, Guys, first up, we're going to discuss an article that Mike Merles put out about a month ago um, that is called A Few Rules Updates. And he's got a lot of interesting rules updates here that we're going to cover. But the first thing I want to talk about is passive perception is back. For me, this is pretty exciting. I love the idea of passive perception because it allowed your party to try to spot something without you informing them that there was something to spot uh, or something to listen for or something to find within the room where they were. And I really thought that was a great way of executing that without letting them know um, when they were choosing to not actively be aware. Uh, but what are your opinions? Joe, what do you think? Well, I think it's a it's a better, faster option than making people roll checks for no reason, which is what you can do if you're a jerk of a DM, uh, to, and also to keep people from metagaming and knowing, hey, I missed something and I didn't roll well enough, I should check more. Um, so I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good tool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rudy, what about you? I like passive perception for the most part. The only thing that makes me uneasy is that if, uh, if a DM does want um, his party to make a perception check, he's going to probably have to set the DC to above the, the player with the highest passive perceptions um, uh, in the party, which I think can kind of constrain a dungeon master a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right in talking about passive perception. It's knowing when to use it that is very important. Uh, You know, I think if you're traveling along from village to village, it's good to let people be using their passive perception then. But if they actively want to search for something, you've got to make sure that you are allowing for that. So you want to set your DCs in a place where they're not constantly succeeding and not constantly failing, because that would ruin the fun for people one way or the other. Uh, Kaner, what do you think? 
Uh, I like passive perception. I think it's a game mechanic that when used effectively and appropriately makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're moving from town to town quickly and you're not really on the alert, it provides an opportunity to know if you're being followed or if there's something nearby without, uh, as has been pointed out, the DM having to say, hey, someone roll this. And then you're like, well, what's out there? Let's keep trying to figure this out until we do. Uh, so I think it's a, I, I like it as a game mechanic. Uh, Joe, when you're using it for your party, uh, what sort of situations do you like to use passive perception for? Uh, passive perception for me is usually in situations where players don't have time to actively uh, look around for stuff. So if, if something zips by really quickly and they need to see some detail of it, that's when I use passive perception. Uh, whereas if they're actually taking time to look, then they can make the roll. Um, and I also, uh, I, I don't know if it's in the current version of the rules or not, but I also like letting players uh, take 10 if they want to uh, you know, effectively get at least their, their passive perception uh, level. Have you ever done the, well, your passive perception is higher than what you rolled, so you default to their passive perception? Yeah, I, I think very. it's very seldom that I, I include, de I'm, I'm a creative writing teacher, so very seldom do I include details that I won't want my players to find out. So if they roll anywhere near it, usually I just say, oh yeah, this is what you find out. Uh, so it's, it's less about hiding things for me than it is about an excuse to talk more to my players and give them more details of my awesome dungeon that I've created. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the auto success. Oh, you rolled a five. Well, here's what you know anyway. Uh, right, right. <laughs> um, in addition, extra actions are uh, better defined now. Uh, specifically, Mike mentions multi-class characters and how if you have an extra action from being a rogue and you're a two-weapon fighter who also has action surge, you can only sort of pick one of those actions rather than taking a couple levels of monk, a couple levels of fighter, a couple levels of rogue, a couple levels of wizard, cast a swift spell, do all this stuff uh, that you could do by limiting you to one extra action per turn. I think, in theory, this rule makes sense if you're from like a mechanical standpoint of trying to stop cheaters. However, it does get a little dicey for me because if you're a two-weapon fighter, you have chosen that over sword and shield because you always want that offhand attack. Um, and so I feel like when you take action surge, you should still be able to get that offhand attack if you're not being abusive. I feel like the rule right now is too general and needs to get a little more specific. It feels like they're using a meat cleaver rather than a scalpel. Uh, but I'm interested to hear, what do you guys think? Uh, Andrew, let's start with you. I agree 100% that the rule needs more definition uh, because I what I like about Next so far is the streamlined battle. Uh, it, it moves the game along and it allows you to do other stuff uh, that involves role-playing. But I don't think that that should come at the expense of hamstringing characters. You know, if you choose two-weapon fighting, one of the reasons you're doing that is to have your two attacks. You don't want to take away an action or force someone to have to choose just because of that. And you want to avoid the other extreme of kind of stacking everything on top of each other and dealing massive amounts of damage slash making turns take 10 minutes. Sure, absolutely. Rudy, what do you think? I agree that they're too vague with this introduction of this rule, but I think it's important that they at least started with it. You know, 
better to start, you know, to use this weird analogy again, start with a meat cleaver to carve up these rules rather than no cutting implement at all. <laughs> so I'm going to run with that. Yeah, I can think of uh, certain, you know, in our party, we haven't had anyone trying to take a million actions on their turn. But my brother was complaining a lot about Rogue, and I think if you put two and two together that he can get more attacks, if he multiclassed into Fighter a little bit and took Action Surge, he would have jumped at that opportunity. So I think it's a good idea that they're talking about this role now. I think while their their heart may be in the right place, it feels like this rule is more reactive than proactive. It's like they're coming from a place of, oh, we better make sure people don't try to cheese the system instead of an, oh, why don't we do something that's going to be really fun and give people cool options? And I think that both of those are aimed in the same direction, but I think the way they go about it uh, makes it more limiting for players now because they're trying to cut back on what those crazy min-maxers might do instead of saying, what can we do to make it the most fun for the most people? Um, if you look at something like uh, 13th Age, which is sort of a 3rd edition, 4th edition hybrid uh, done by a couple of the writers from both of those editions, uh, Rangers with two weapons sometimes get an extra attack, but it's not a guaranteed. It's whether your die roll is even or odd. If it's even, you get a second swing, even if you miss the first one. And so that's kind of a really fun and dynamic uh, action uh economy because you don't know on any given round if you're going to do tons and tons of damage or miss twice or or whatnot but it, it gives you a much more exciting feel to the character and i think uh mechanics like that are a better way to go than to just say uh you know here's here's the one rule that uh rules them all and oh yeah you ranger with your two swords if that uh barbarian over there has a, a huge double-handed axe and takes the action surge then he takes just as many attacks as you do and does four times the damage. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think I think you're right. It, when you're thinking about these rules, it shouldn't be, how can we prevent cheating? It should be, how can we create the maximum fun? And like you said, those are pointed in the same direction. Um, but one has a, a loftier goal behind it and I think goes further, which is what we want to see. And I love that thing from 13th Age. I think getting an even number is exciting and that's what you're hoping for and it reduces some of the decision points um, that you make during combat that can bog down combat of oh, should I take my second attack or should I use my cunning action instead or, and then it's going to depend on your first roll and that kind of thing. I think it really makes a, a lot of sense to, to try to be more fun within your game rather than to try to shut down cheaters and let abusers run the system. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about here is all PC races have their speed reset to 30 feet. I think it's probably a good thing to have this universal speed system, particularly when it comes to new players so that they know, okay, my speed is 30 feet. This is what it is, unless I'm in heavy armor, which we're going to touch on in a second. Uh, but what do you think about that? All dwarves, all gnomes, all halflings now have this speed of 30 feet. And Andrew, we'll start with you. Uh, I think it makes sense on one level. Again, when it comes to particularly first-time players, it, it makes things a little easier when it comes to moving about uh, quickly. In certain ways, it, it's, it levels the speed playing field, I guess. I thought it was interesting that they took note of the fact that certain character or races had been 30 feet for a long time and that they were just 
adjusting to that standard, uh, which I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. But I think overall, it's a, it's an interesting move. Yeah, I agree um, with you too. From a lore perspective, I guess it's always been that uh, shorter legs means shorter legs means you can't run as far in seconds. And unfortunately, we'll never answer that question with a dwarf human halfling sprint or whatever. But <laughs> to your point, James, for first time players. If you pick a badass dwarf and then find that there's a penalty on speed, that's kind of a downer in your first combat. Because I assume, as a dwarf, you're going to want to get in people's faces and smash them. And uh, if you're lagging behind, that that's not going to happen. Joe, why don't you talk to us a little bit about this? And I know you have a particular opinion about feet versus squares. And uh, touch on that. Well, the the big issue I have with that is that there are no mechanics in the game that deal with anything less than five feet. Uh, so if I stop four feet away from a goblin and I know that I've got a three-foot sword, I can hit him, but he's only got you know an eight-inch dagger and he can't hit me back. If that mechanic existed, combat would take 12 times as long, but it would make sense then to have things measured exactly in feet. Because it doesn't, I think uh, squares is a lot easier um, and, and a lot less to, to figure out. Um, and also from an international point of view, I know there's a lot of people outside of the U.S. that play D&D, um, and they would be more familiar with uh, meters, the metric system, and forcing them to use feet is going to make it even, even less uh, familiar for them. So I think just a standardized square system uh, is the best way to go for that. But as far as dwarves themselves and, and getting a 30-foot speed there, uh, I think that is going to take away the really cool dwarven iconic thing, which, which was that dwarves always have the same speed, regardless of what kind of armor they're wearing. Uh, and that felt like uh, consistency is what defines dwarves for me in, in my mind. And I felt like dwarves always go 25 feet, no matter what, doesn't matter how many, you know, how many tons of metal they have on their body, they're still going 25 feet. And that felt really especially dwarven to me. And I feel like that, that will get lost when you uh, normalize everybody and, and, you know, like the new SAT scores, it's just going to make it less cool. To <laughs> SATs I, I, I are say, cool. You make a good I say, point. I say, again, showing my age, I say new SAT scores, and that happened how many years ago? But anyway. <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, we're all part of the old system for sure. So Yeah. Uh, I don't know, Rudy, you're the youngest buck here, right? You didn't have like a 3,200. No, I was 16. Alex had the funny. Uh, ridiculous. 2,400. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, 2,400. So, um, so Rudy, uh, response? Yeah, just going off of what Joe said for squares versus feet, uh, having played a lot with a battle map, when we do Theater of the Mind now in 5th edition, I find it myself picturing the map, uh, myself, my party, my enemies. And it's harder for me to conceptualize feet in my head. Uh, saying an enemy is 25 feet away versus enemy being 15 feet away in my head. I don't, I don't get that distance immediately versus something like, well, he's three squares away or he's five squares away. I don't understand why they, they chose to emphasize that aspect. Um, maybe it's just me. Maybe new players prefer to think of things in reality versus the battle map, I'm not sure. Well, and I agree, too, about squares versus feet. And I think one place where it really helps is also in spells, 
when you think about a blast or an area effect, it was very easy to figure out in fourth edition, okay, you're five squares away from the origin. This has a burst of five, so you were hit. Or you're within this guy's, um, you know, blast three. Uh, and that all made sense. Um, now, when you're trying to figure out with a cone or a cylinder or a sphere, the math gets a little trickier there, right? Um, so I do agree. Uh, that would be good to see. Um, also, I like that idea of the metric system uh, because I think that is easier to use and uh, sort of makes more sense for a medieval fantasy type setting. Um, <laughs> Uh, although I suppose they were using standard back in the historical days. But anyway, uh, on to... Let's debate this further. <laughs> well, well, back, back then it was also the feet varied based on the size of the king's feet. So depending on which kingdom you're in, your spell might have a different distance. <laughs> uh, that would be terribly confusing. Uh, writing it down for my campaign. So... Um, so Speaking of speed, it seems that your speed in heavy armor will be determined by your strength, which I like that idea that the stronger you are, the faster you can move and the less encumbered you will be in heavy armor uh, does make sense to me. Uh, and I, I sort of like them bringing in that rule. Uh, what do you think about that, Rudy? Uh, as a sword, you know, my main character right now is a straight sword and shield fighter whose goal is to get into the enemy's face immediately and protect to the rest of the party, I'm all for it. Um, unfortunately, as with these articles tend to be, they speak in vagaries. I'd love to see an example of how they plan to scale it. Uh, you know, I'm not worried because my fighter has 20 strength, so I'll be all over the battlefield. But uh, for someone with 18 uh, or 16 even, I'm curious how the encumbrance will still work with them. I do want to see the specifics on this before I make like a total, this is awesome judgment call, which goes for all of these, I suppose. Joe, uh, what are your feelings? Um, well, I, my, my feelings are related to a, a critique I have of a, a core part of what seems like a core part of next D and D next. And that's the, the idea that AC is your only real defense. Uh, and so I think, you want to max AC, you have to then max your strength. And I think it's going to limit the number of types of characters and, and ability score arrays that people are willing to try because they know if they want to wear the heavy armor, they have to have such and such a strength. Um, whereas in 4th in edition, which, as I said before, is my favorite edition, you've got multiple defenses. Every attack is not going to go against your AC, so you would have a better chance of... of defending against other things with characters that had different ability scores. And do you not think of saving throws as a defense? Well, it, just like I said with the, uh, with the way the, the rules are coming out more uh, reactively instead of proactively, I feel like a saving throw assumes that whatever spell or whatnot is coming at you is going to hit you, and then you have to make a check to see how badly it hits you. Uh, and I like the idea that, that a particularly... Uh, nimble character might dodge out of the way of, of a, a lightning bolt or something, or, or a really strong-willed character might not be hurt by that psychic blast. Uh, and and I, I, I like the idea uh, from a speed point of view. I know 4th edition has never been accused of having fast combats, but I did like the idea that you didn't have to have another die roll to see after this power came at you uh, what it did to you. Sure, speed of combat, and the fact that even if you do manage to make your save, oftentimes you still suffer some ill effect uh, right. is kind of disappointing, I definitely agree. 
Uh, Andrew, what do you think about this speed and uh, strength and heavy armor ruling? Uh, if I'm being honest, I don't have terribly strong feelings on the matter because I've never played a character that's worn heavy armor. But uh, based on everything I'm hearing, what uh, what everyone's saying, I, I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, the stronger you are, if your armor is heavy, what what that can mean as far as your movement is concerned. But I, I like Rudy's point, especially about kind of how it's scaled, because I do think if you're putting something heavy on your body, that there should be uh, a potential factor that goes into it and so it will be interesting once that gets more have more clearly defined how that plays out i think it leads to some interesting choices that you'll have to make as a character but i also think joe's point is great which is might lead to a lot of people focusing on maxing out their strength to max out their ac let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor noblenight.com hello hello citizens oh thank goodness adventurers we need a noble knight Perhaps you can slay the beast of retail and reap the promises of riches. Riches? Yes! Great prices, out-of-print games, the latest releases, and a magic box that converts all of your old loot into cash or new loot. But why? Fantastic! I'll do it! Yes, well... You see, the beast he kidnapped the mayor and can only be slain by the most noble of knights. Yes, yes, yes. I said I'll do it. Yes, the thing is, I was talking to her. What? Fear not, kind citizen. The noble knight will save the day, rescue the lord in distress, and liberate all that loot in a way only possible at Noble Knight. If you'd like to get your hands on Noble Knight's loot, head over to thetomeshow.com and click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Ha, I got to do something to help out. And we're back. All right, the next article I want to talk about is also by Mike Merles. And this one is all about the sorcerer in D&D Next. And I have to say that I was a little underwhelmed by the article. He talks about how it's going to have the... Uh, the sorcerer will have the same spell progression as the wizard. Um, but it's going to use these sorcery points... Uh, within the article and the sorcery points can be used to get extra spells or to heighten your damage or range or uh, other pieces of the spell um, that are not yet defined. They're also going to be used in connection to your sorceress heritage. Um, And right now he outlines it looks like Draconic is going to be an option and Wild Mage is going to be an option. Um, But what are your guys' opinions on the Sorcerer? Uh, And Andrew Kane, I want to start with you because roughly 80% of the games we've played of D&D, you have been a Sorcerer. Uh, That's correct. I do. I am drawn to the class. Uh, I like the idea of this kind of innate power that is on one level a little bit uncontrollable, but also on the other comes naturally. Uh, it's just the, it's that type of kind of conceit that really intrigues me as a player. Uh, however, I agree with you 100% that the article was underwhelming uh, in the sense of they hinted at a lot of things, but they didn't really give you too much to work with. And I, I don't love that they started off by saying that the wizard or the sorcerer essentially lives in the wizard's shadow and they're frankly not that different. That doesn't really provide a great setup for what you're going to lead into. Uh, The sorcery points are intriguing. Uh, I think it might create an interesting dynamic uh, and a little more um, flexibility with the class. But again, it's very vague. So, oh, it could be this, it could be that, or any number of other variables. So 
I think time will tell how interesting that might be. But at this point, uh, I don't know if the differences are enough to really make anyone get super excited about the Sorcerer. Sure. Right now, it feels too close to the wizard to really be its own distinct thing. Uh, uh, Joe, what are your thoughts on the Sorcerer? Well, before I talk about the mechanics of the Sorcerer, I just want to mention that many, many belts on your body do not a suit of armor make. Uh, the, uh, the artwork that they chose for this article, I, I feel, uh, you know, John Shindahet has done a wonderful job since he took over as, as uh, lead artistic guy on the D&D project. And uh, I don't think he had much to do with this. This feels like they just did a search for give me a sorcerer image and uh, make it kind of make it a kind of weird one because we're still not sure where sorcerer is going. And they got this. And the guy's just wearing a bunch of belts. And that doesn't really tell me anything other than that he's maybe terrified that his pants will fall down. Um, but uh, but from the from a mechanical point of view, um, the first sorcerer that we saw in the playtest was a better wizard than the wizard and a better fighter than the fighter, so I hope that uh, they put some effort into balancing that more. Um, but these, uh, these willpower points, or, or the sorcerer's points, whatever they're called there, um, I I feel like there's too many options for what they can do, and I think um, there's going to be too much to juggle. And I think uh, uh, somebody trying to decide, okay, what's what's the best thing to put these points into, and then they'll never put their points in anything else. So, like, um, you know, if if you can max the damage on your spells by spending points, why would you ever do anything else? Or or if you can do a, some other really cool thing. Uh, so that's that's my general take on it with this vague thing that we've been given so far. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I have to say that this is a joke uh, Andrew and I have shared often that uh, the sorcerer comes from the third edition player's handbook, that art, and his, uh, his outfit is supposed to suggest his chaotic nature, um, and therefore it was changeable every day, so it could change based with his mood. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, John Shindahead has actually... Uh, I, I believe he was let go. Um, oh, was he? Oh, well, that yes. explains why they're going back to crappy art then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, sick burn on wizards. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, I... Oh, no, that's totally Negative fine. about things. Oh, yeah, they're like listening, that. so. You're right, <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, and I think uh, I, I totally agree with you. He was awesome. Uh, Rudy, how do you feel about the sorcerer? I think this article is just such a tease, man. He drops a lot of information on us without a lot of specifics. I mean, the idea of sorcerer points on their own sound cool, but then you can also, as Joe pointed out, make your spells even stronger or have these weird physical manifestations. Whoa, that sounds awesome. It sounds almost like two classes. Maybe maybe this might be hinting at subclasses. Maybe there will be some sort of fighter sorcerer who uses his draconic powers to make him stronger or what have you. Um, again, you know, I'm complain, complaining about how vague these are, which I guess is the point. They're supposed to just hint at things to come, but come on, man, give us a little more information <laughs> than this. Yeah, I agree. It is very vague. And I think part uh, the, they're trying to define it by using the wizard as the, uh, like, Hey, it's like the wizard except for these things. And I think maybe that's also what is making us feel like this class is too much like the wizard or like it's two separate classes. That makes perfect sense. The one thing he does mention is the warrior mage uh, that we first saw 
uh, in months ago that relied on willpower points. Um, and as you used cast spells, you would use up those willpower points and then whatever your sorceress aspect was would come forth. And uh, the example in the playtest was the the only sorceress uh, sort of power available was Draconic. And you would become this awesome Draconic fighter. Um, and I don't think that's what we're going to see in the Fighter Mage subclass. Uh, one, because it it didn't make a lot of sense, like... There was no um, bad thing about using up all your willpower. Like, why wouldn't you just blast everything and then use it all up and then be like, oh, now I'm a dragon. This is awesome. I can kill people. Um, you know, uh, it, it didn't make much sense to me. But uh, I am excited to see a, a subclass of Fighter Mage. Um, but what do you guys think it's going to look like? Uh, and Joe, we'll start with you. Um, well, I, I think, uh, <laughs> they could go a lot of ways with it. They have a lot of, um, a lot of previous fighty slash magic-y classes to draw from, uh, whether it becomes a blade singer or, or, a, a sword mage or, or something, uh, kind of like the hex blade. Uh, there's a lot of different ways they could go with it. Um, I just want it to be whatever it is. I want it to not take away from the uniqueness of people who want to play fighters or people who want to play, um, wizards, because if you know if you can hit as well as a fighter and also throw fireballs at stuff, then why would anyone play fighter? I completely agree. I want to see a fighter that incorporates magic into his fighting style. Maybe he can teleport around while he attacks, like the Swords Mage from Fourth Ed. Maybe his his weapon is imbued with certain uh, attack powers, or maybe it, that's his thing is that he can imbue his weapon with different styles of of el or elements or 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 um, cold, or iron, or what have you. Uh, I don't want some guy that just can throw a fireball in someone's face and smash him with an axe. Uh, I want something truly unique, and something that fits within the warrior class, the fighter class, because at the end of the day, this is a fighter. He should be fighting. Yes, absolutely agree. The fighter should definitely be fighting. And uh, I think your option for an axe-wielding fireball guy comes within multi-classing. And that's how you get the balance of that right, is you level up, uh, you know, uh, the same amount. But your progression towards a fireball and towards your extra attack are less because you're focusing on two disciplines rather than just one. Andrew, how do you feel about fighter mages? Uh, I, feel, I I'm I'm in a pretty much solid agreement with what's already been said. Uh, I think one of the great things that uh, or well something we've already pointed out was one of the things that made this article about the sorcerer meh was how similar it sounds to the wizard. So what what what's the difference really? And so again you're going to want something that is unique, but also works within the, the confines of the class it's supposed to fit within. So I agree that you don't want basically a sorcerer who is also a really good fighter. You got to find ways of, of incorporating those things to make a fighter, a fighter with some interesting magic potential, or, you know, a sorcerer who is primarily a magic user, but isn't, you know, left into the third edition when he's out of spells, he's at the back of the crowd firing in with his crossbow uh, because he's got nothing left to do. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about, guys, is uh, 
trolling through the comments here, it seems that some people think, even though the sorcerer is too close to the wizard, that Ooh. there isn't room for the warlock. And I disagree with that completely. I think there's plenty of room left for the warlock. Um, you know, a lot of interesting options have been discussed, uh, and it sounds like there's going to be multiple builds, one that's straight magic usury, one that incorporates a little more melee, and one that incorporates summoning some creatures. <laughs> Um, which I would love to see all three. I think that would re be really awesome. But I want to hear from you guys. What do you think uh, the Warlock is going to be like? What's on your wish list for the Warlock? And uh, Joe, let's hear from you. Well, I think your first mistake was reading comments on the internet. Uh, never do that. <laughs> never do that. No, that's always important <laughs> feedback from comments. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's right. <laughs> Ron Paul 2012. Oh gosh. Um, so, so I really like, I, I don't, it's going to sound weird. I don't really care about the warlock mechanic. I like the story aspect of warlocks. I like, uh, you know, wizards are the dedicated students who spend years studying arcane texts so that they can use magic. And sorcerers are the, the rich kids who were born with power that, uh, you know, they, they can just do it on their own. And, and, and the warlocks are kind of the, the jealous uh, rival who is like, wow, I want to have magic power. I wasn't born with it, but I'm not going to waste time studying it. I'm going to go make a deal with this demon over here and get some magic power. And I, I like that as a DM. I like the, the options uh, for storytelling that that opens up. Uh, and so I, I, I want to I see that exist somehow in D&D &D, uh, just so that I can use it to mess with my players. Ah, yeah, I think that is a great point. The story aspect of the Warlock, I think it's one of the most story-rich classes that D&D has to offer. Uh, what do you think, Rudy? I definitely think there's more room for Warlocks and also other magic users. Just, it falls on wizards to make sure this doesn't fall into like a, a fourth ed. All magic users are essentially the same thing at the end of the day. They just have powers. I like the sorcerer's different with the sorcerer points. I, I want to see how that plays out. If you do a warlock, make sure he's not like a wizard or a sorcerer. Um, mechanically, I would love to see a class solely devoted to summoning. Uh, you know, we have pets with rangers, oh, yeah. but you can just kind of have one on the field at a time, I think. I'm not positive on that, actually. But to have a, sum, uh, a warlock is a summoner, and then you have subclasses, depending on which demon or, or stars or whichever... Uh, pact he makes allows you to summon different types of minions that would be really neat and i think that's something that that uh, would add a lot to to this version of the game yeah absolutely i would love to see if you make a pact with a demon you should be able to summon a lot of lesser demons who are also subservient to that higher demon power that would be awesome kaner what do you think about warlocks uh if i'm being honest don't know a ton about warlocks mm -hmm. but uh i think uh, as someone, James, as you're very familiar, who loves the story aspect of D&D &D, when I provide you with excessively long <laughs> double-digit page character histories, um, I, I think, uh, to Joe's point, I think that's a great aspect of that particular class. And I think it's an opportunity to do something different, as Rudy said, uh, not to not to be repetitive, but, you know, when all the classes are very similar, you lump all the spellcasters together and you lump all the melee fighters together, it, it makes it less interesting, you know, why bother being um, this or that? So I think it's an opportunity to really make something unique. And so if they take that opportunity, it, it, I think it would be worthwhile. Well, guys, I think that'll do it for the roundtable. Joe. 
where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Joe Lestowski, J-O-E-L-A-S-T-O-W-S-K-I. Uh, I don't put a lot there. Uh, I put more on uh, my local gaming store, modern-myths.com. I write the What the Average Joe Thinks uh, gaming review column. Uh, and I'm also on dungeonsmaster.com, uh, which is a site uh, for DMs and does a lot with uh, the D&D Encounters program. And we do kind of weekly updates there. And so I'm on there quite a bit as well. Oh, that sounds awesome. I'd love to check it out. Andrew Kane, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you are welcome to find me on Twitter at Cavalier Kane. That's at K-A-V-A-L-I-E-R-K-A-N-E. Fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And Rudy, where can people find you? You can check me out on the Twitter at Rudy Basso, R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. Or hey, how about some comedy in your life? Check out my sketch comedy group, CowsComeHomeComedy.com. And guys... Wear your Ghostbusters shirts this weekend, seriously. I am super bummed out. Oh, I am really right? sad Yeah, Harold Ramis as well. It's, it's so weird. It really is. That stinks. You can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. And check out my blog, which is all about the 5th edition world I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. And thanks to Joe, Andrew, and Rudy. Many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You can also leave us a comment about the show on the Tome's website. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.